New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo rejoiced recently that the coronavirus numbers in New York are falling. This is how he reported that good news. The number is down because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. Destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. That's how it works. It's math, the governor instructed us. That's how it works. God sat on the bench for this win. Well, we've got to give the poor man a break. He has no idea what he's talking about, but his fundamental error is to assume that there can be only one cause to an action, at least if we're thinking theology and philosophy. It's a logical fallacy. If man accomplishes something, God had nothing to do with it. God has no place in man's kingdom is the message we're to hear. And so the governor, like so many, is really blind to the fact that God is the fount of all being, that he is the sovereign Lord who ordains all that comes to pass through the secondary causation of human beings, the supreme cause, the enveloping cause of everything that takes place is God, the wellspring of all being. Well, in recent weeks, we have tracked Babylon's King Nebuchadnezzar as he came to term with these truths. All rulers of the earth believe this or do not believe this, and they operate from that foundation, whatever their belief system is. And we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's transformation as he came to understand that the Most High God rules from heaven's throne over all of the affairs of man. But today I invite us to find Daniel chapter 7, where God reveals similar ideas now, not to the pagan king, who I believe did come to know the true and living God, but here now he reveals this same truth to Daniel, his exemplary servant. So in chapter 7, we find human history centering on the glorious king of kingdom number 5, we might call it. And what I'd like to do here in the time that we have is look at Daniel chapter 7 with a fairly quick bird's eye view of the chapter and its flow. And then at the end to offer several truths that should orient our worldview in light of this fifth and final kingdom. Daniel chapter 7 verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The imagery depicting this sea of humanity that is whipped into a frenzy of conflict that now brings out these four creatures, these four beasts. Verse 4, the first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked as its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. Without going into the explanation of it at any length, I believe this is a reference to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had been king and now is dead, and Belshazzar is now the king of Babylon. Its wings are plucked, 
It's interesting that there are depictions that we can find today in archaeology of Babylon described or pictured as a lion with two wings. That is, there was uh, an ability to move and to conquer. And it's, it says here that the wings, though, were plucked. And I think that's probably referring back to chapter 4 and Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. And then standing up like a man. We will not find that same description of the three kingdoms that now are to come. And I think it's a reference to Nebuchadnezzar's true conversion, that he became one who honored the true and living God. In verse 5, we find a second kingdom. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. This bear is symptomatic of Medo-Persia and evidences its slower conquest. It's raised up on one side, which might indicate Persia as the stronger element in the, uh, over the Medes in the Medo-Persian Empire. And the three ribs, likely the three kingdoms of Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt that Medo-Persia conquered in their rise to power. A third kingdom, verse 6. After this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. This leopard is a picture of Greece and with the four wings it pictures well the rapid conquest that Greece would have in the days to come. And the four heads were the four parts of the empire that were divided up after the death of warrior king Alexander the Great. Verse 7, a fourth kingdom. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. This beast is the empire of Rome, which was to come. It's a frightening beast, more powerful than the kingdoms that came before. And with the horns, a picture of kings, there is to be a confederation of rulers. The emphasis on the little horn that talks big against God, we can find parallel in Revelation 13, verses 5 and 6. And I, I think this confederacy... And indeed, on some level, even this little horn has not yet been fulfilled. There is probably a near fulfillment for the little horn, but uh, the archetypal form, the antitype uh, that is to come, is uh, yet, I think, future to this day. But we have this fourth kingdom, this Roman Empire, a confederacy of kings, and great power and authority. That is clearly seen, even though we don't perhaps know all of the details. At verse 9, there's a significant transition in Daniel chapter 7. We read there in verse 9, As I looked in his dream, thrones were placed. 
And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and his hair and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Think of Ezekiel's vision of the burning wheels as the chariot on which the glory of God resides. Verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. A countless number of servants assembled. And the court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. There's much we cannot know or even visualize of this awesome scene filled with majesty and glory and beauty and wonder. But no interpreter doubts that the Ancient of Days is a reference to God. It's a glorious scene beyond our imagination. But at verse 11, it's, it's interrupted. There's this invasion in the text. We really don't want this interruption. We want to see the glory of God and consider who he is. But at verse 11, in Daniel's dream, he looked then because of the sound of the great words that the little horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And for the rest of the beasts and their dominion, it was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So there's a destruction, this little horn that's squawking as we see this glorious vision of God in his sovereignty. But these nations are left on life support in some sense as God closes up the story of human history as much time passes but it reminds us of the persistent rebellion against God by the kings of this world as this little horn squawks of his great importance and attacks God but the Lord rules the Lord reigns and with this unwelcome interruption of the little horn verses 11 and 12 we come then, uh, recognizing that the dominion is taken away, we come now to a fifth kingdom. Verse 13, kingdom five. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Turn back to Daniel chapter 2. This reminds us in the first vision and dream of Nebuchadnezzar. So we read these important words in Daniel chapter 2 in verse 44. Daniel 2, 44 and in the days of those kings, that is, human kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and they broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. A great God has made this known to the king. What shall be after this? The dream is certain. Its interpretation, sure. So the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had concerning God's 
revelation of the future is connected now to what God is revealing to Daniel. There will be this fifth kingdom, this kingdom that will never be destroyed, will never be turned over, will never be lost. And all people's nations and languages shall serve it. No human kingdom has ever accomplished this. But I'd like us to look at verse 13. There was one like a son of man. I think the idea of like there parallels like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard, like a beast, and now like a son of man. The depiction of this kingdom is one who is a man, one who presents himself to the ancient of days. Now, the identity of this man, of course, is shrouded in the text here. But we do know what is very clear is that he comes from God. I think that's the idea in verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven comes one who is like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven mirrors Mount Sinai where the Lord came down in a cloud from heaven. And wherever we find this imagery, we often see it as an indication of one who has come from heaven. That is, his source is from eternity past. His source is the eternal divine presence of the Lord. So he comes from God, number one. Number two, divine attributes and prerogatives are assigned to him in verse 14. What king has ever had the adoration of all people's nations and languages? His dominion being an everlasting dominion that will never pass away and will never be destroyed. That is the prerogative of God. Everlasting life is an attribute of God. So this verse, interestingly, verse 13, is the only use of this common phrase, son of man, in the entire Old Testament where the person is not identified by name. And it is no mistake then. So let me just make clear, son of man is used of many individuals in the Old Testament. But it's clear the person is named. This man is not named. And it is no mistake that the Lord Jesus Christ used this designation of himself repeatedly. This one, this dominion that we saw in 2, 24 and 25, or 44 and 45, that we saw in chapter 4, verses 17, 25 and 32, and that we now see again here, is ruled by this Son of Man. The Holy Spirit really wants us to grasp the importance and the splendor of this fifth kingdom, ruled by this Son of Man. It's very vital that you get this. The book of Daniel teaches us again and again and again to look for this eternal kingdom, to know of its dominion, to know that it is always ruling sovereignly over the kingdoms of man. Now at verse 15 and to the end of the chapter, the vision is now interpreted for Daniel. Notice verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. 
I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. He told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Notice that the saints receive the kingdom. So the king who reigns forever has a people, has holy ones who are dedicated entirely to him, who receive this eternal kingdom with him, replacing all earthly kingdoms. Daniel has questions about this. Verse 19. Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth and iron and claws and a bronze, in which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions." As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. This is tremendous truth about the future in history. God permits man's kingdom, we notice here, to persecute the saints who will receive an eternal kingdom in the end. But this reminds us, I stress this significantly to our young people, to our children, but for all of us to remember, you can never be a citizen of two kingdoms. Not in this sense. You will either be a persecuted outcast of man's kingdom and an inheritor of Christ's eternal kingdom, or you will serve man's kingdom to be judged by Christ and excluded from his kingdom. We have no alternative, nor do we want one. This kingdom of man in which we now live is not our eternal home. It is not our final loyalty. It's not the kingdom to which we look to ultimately protect us and where we find our joy. We cannot be a citizen of two kingdoms. We're either a citizen of Christ or a citizen of man's kingdom. Verse 23, thus he said, as for the fourth beast, you're asking me about Daniel, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth that will follow Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given, that is the saints of God shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Perhaps for three and a half years. But the court shall sit in judgment. That is, this is not the end. 
and his dominion. This powerful king, pictured as a little horn, shall be taken away and be consumed and destroyed to the end. So this little blasphemous Christian persecuting king will be crushed by God's justice. I think the fourth kingdom is the kingdom of Rome. But again, so much of what we read about this kingdom, we cannot find genuine fulfillment historically. And so there seems to be a sense in which this kingdom is revived. It has a future yet to our day. And this king who rises up on the pages of history as the ultimate persecutor king of God's people will eventually be judged and crushed. This confidence Daniel is given and we now have through the Spirit. Verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High God. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here it is again, Christian, the repeated emphasis of the book of Daniel. We get it. It's very obvious. God's kingdom rules supremely. And yet we don't get it, do we? We fail so often to grasp this reality when, for instance, we get too caught up in the affairs and the future of this nation. Yes, we should be exemplary citizens laboring for the good of our society. I mean nothing else. But when we become filled with despair, when we mourn the loss of better times, when we become overly angered by the failures of our nation or obsessed with those who seem to want to ruin it, it simply reveals a lack of historical perspective. It evidence the lack of genuine affection for God and his kingdom and a sense of what is to come. We need eyes that see long. We need to look to the future. This is the message of the book of Daniel in large measure. To look to this one like a son of man. This son of man who comes before the ancient of days and has an eternal kingdom that will never end and his saints sharing in that kingdom forever. When we live as if man's kingdom is all there is, when we calibrate our lives to a passing mist like this and ignore the kingdom that will never end, we live as fools. We lose our perspective. We lose our capacity to filter and understand the days that surround us. Well, verse 28, as the vision ends here at the end of the matter. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, says Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarm me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. He is drained, nearly delirious from this vision. And when you get a vision of all of history encapsulated, it is draining. And when you think of the innumerable people surrounding the throne and Daniel seeing this vision and seeing the glory of a great God, what would one be but drained? 
The kingdom toppling prophecies, stunning glory of God's presence, the countless witnesses surrounding the throne, the future assurance, and even the prophecy of the suffering of God's people. Daniel shares this vision with us, but it exhausts him. Well, these are fairly straightforward truths for us who know Jesus. We thank God for our knowledge of Christ and our knowledge through the book of Daniel of the future that is to come. Let me just draw out a few concluding thoughts which are very obvious to us on this side of the cross and with what we have seen and see coming. But let's center our understanding upon them. First, God knows exactly what is coming. He has written the script of history. He's never fooled. He's never surprised. And he ordains all that comes to pass. God knows what is to come. Secondly, all of man's kingdoms will fall in the end. We must live our lives as U.S. citizens realizing that this nation, our nation, has a shelf life. It will expire. It is only our temporary home. And all of her wealth and all of her power will one day end. That perspective helps me to understand the world in which I live. Thirdly, God's sovereign plan for the nations includes the persecution of God's people. We should not be shocked by those who oppose God and then oppose us. All who live godly lives will suffer persecution, but we know that vindication will come. I don't think the governor of New York was shooting at Eden Baptist Church whatsoever or has any awareness that we exist. But as such words are spoken in the media, they're an attack upon God's people. They are a statement saying, I'm in power and I'm telling you, you're fools. We expect this. We understand this to be the future that we will face until the final kingdom comes. Number four, we as born again followers of Jesus Christ have a glorious future. We will possess Christ's kingdom. We will live in it. We will revel in it. And we will help run it. We will exercise dominion with Jesus for all eternity. This we know. And so it's appropriate to ask, are you a citizen of this fifth kingdom? If you're not a born-again citizen of Christ's kingdom, know that this is where we all start. We're all born in sin. There is a son of man who comes. He comes from heaven. He comes to take on true humanity. And he suffered the wrath of man's kingdom in his crucifixion. All of the suffering of God's people through all of history will never come to the level of what Jesus suffered as he paid the price of human sin. And so he suffered not only man's wrath, but also the wrath of God on the cross. Suffered the judgment of our sin. But we rejoice on this Lord's day that he rose again. And that in his resurrection, he then can take on a kingdom that will never pass away, that is eternal. Are you a citizen of this fifth and final kingdom? Are you living as such? 
May we trust in this future, trust in our eternal God, and trust in our Savior until we enter into his presence.